0: Hi, everybody. Bob Olson here with Afterlife TV. You can find us on AfterlifeTV.com. This is where we search for evidence of life after death and ask the meaningful questions around that subject. Wow, today, what an amazing uh, time we're going to have. I'm excited for you. I'm excited for me. Uh, We have an author to a book uh, which is written about his near-death experience uh, that has just hit New York Times- Bestseller, not number, not number two, not number five, not number twenty, number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It's such uh, people want to hear about this subject. They want to learn more about it, and this is proof of that. Uh, and speaking of proof, the title of it is Proof of Heaven. There you go. Well, I'll back it up a little bit. Proof of Heaven. A neurosurgeon's journey into the afterlife. There's a picture of him. You guys can see him beside me. Welcome, Dr. Ivan Alexander. We're so happy to have you here.
1: Well, thank you, Bob. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, this is this is really exciting for me. It's exciting for a lot of people who are um, uh, familiar with Afterlife TV and been watching Afterlife TV uh, for about a year now. We only started about a year ago, and uh, and people have heard a lot about near-death experiences. Yours is really unusual. It's a very unusual near-death experience, as you found out after you finally started researching them, which was after you wrote the book, right?
1: During the process of writing the book, right.
0: Yeah, I mean, you wrote down all your experiences, and well, we'll get to that, right? But you wrote down all the experiences Uh before you started doing the research, really smart stuff, uh, advice from your son there. Why don't we just start with your background, because it's your background also that makes this uh, story of yours uh, so uh, unusual, so significant. kind of reminds me a little bit of Dr. Brian Weiss when he first came out with Many Lives, Many Masters. Tell us about that background.
1: Well, I grew up in a um, uh, scientific family. My father was an academic neurosurgeon, and he instilled a a very strong uh, sense of science as the path to truth. Uh, majored in chemistry, then went to Duke Medical School and uh, did my neurosurgical training uh, at Duke and at Harvard. And then I spent about 15 years on faculty at Harvard Medical School at the Brigham Women's and the Children's Hospitals and thought I had a very good idea about how the brain and mind and consciousness all worked. And um, you know it was against that background that I then had my, my NDE. It yeah. changed everything that I thought about that relationship.
0: Well, yeah, which is really cool because you know what I love about this. Can I call you Eben? May I, yes, may I call or you? Eben, What I love, Eben. What I love about uh, this, Eben, is that first of all, you were that kind of skeptic that didn't really think too much about it all at all, right? I mean, just that I was something I, for other people. I really
1: understood it, right? <laughs> and that that meant that there was no real way to explain any kind of an afterlife, no way to explain how soul or spirit or consciousness could live beyond the death of the brain and
0: body. Well, you know, it it reminds me of my own experience. I was a private investigator who, you know, only looked at evidence, looked at the evidence. I never had any evidence of the afterlife. And uh, it wasn't until my father passed that I decided to look into it, you know. And in, in your case, you had this experience made you aware of things that you just weren't looking at earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, why don't we start off with, you know, what happens to sort of put you into this coma and, and and so that you had this NDE?
1: Okay, I think um, just to... Cut right to the chase. It was about four years ago. Right now, hit me like a freight train. 4:30 in the morning. I Woke up, severe back pain, um, and then over the next uh, three hours or so, that got much worse. Severe headache, uh, and then I remember my last words uh, uh, to my wife and son: "Don't call 911." you know, trust me, I'm a doctor, it's just muscle spasm, but I was already so far gone uh, with severe headache and slipping into coma that I I didn't realize what was happening to me, and then I was just gone, and I was gone for a week. I had a grand mal seizure. I don't remember anything beyond that moment. Uh, My wife did call 911, and they came and packed me up and took me off to the hospital, but I was gone. I was already done for.
0: Really cool, really interesting uh, story because now, so you're, you're in a coma for a week. I'm curious, uh, and, and I recognize, I'll say this ahead of time, I recognize that just because you have an, a, a near-death experience doesn't mean you, know, you understand everything that happened. Um, but I love to explore things that uh, I haven't run into before and maybe uh, you probably haven't thought about before. So you're, you're in a coma for a week. Any sense at all on whether this near-death experience happened in a second, maybe the second you went into the coma, halfway through the week, throughout the whole week? I know time, the whole you got the whole time issue there. You do a really right. good job explaining that. Any sense?
1: Well, I, one thing I can tell you is it, it felt, the whole experience felt like it went for years. I mean, I was in there a very, very long time. And, of course, I realized when I was in that realm that time flow in that realm is completely different uh, and much freer than time flow in the earthly realm. And in fact, from that outer realm, uh, we have access to any part of our space-time here. And it explains so much about things like reincarnation and deathbed visions and all of that, and appearance of lost, of departed loved ones in near-death experiences. But to get to your question, um, all I know is that it happened, for the most part, deep in coma, there were a few anchors uh, to earth events, that is to uh, people in the earthly realm, that were hinged mainly around the fifth and sixth day of my seven-day coma and into the seventh day morning.
0: Oh.
1: Um, and those things kind of helped to peg at least those particular events along that uh, you know three-day uh, interval, although so much of it, as I said, seemed to um, last for centuries. I mean, it was amazing. I, I had no memory of my life before, uh, of my earthly existence, although I was, uh, I was made aware of earth during the, uh, during the, the journey inside. But the meningitis was so severe, it had wiped out all my kind of personal memories. Um, and, uh, that was very helpful. I mean, that was, I think, a part of what helped make my uh, journey very uh, illustrative of near-death experiences in their ultra-reality um, at large. So um, that was helpful, but uh, very hard to say exactly when it all happened, but uh, most likely occurred over several days yeah. that I was in, in this coma.
0: Definitely, it sounds like it. Uh, a couple things, you know, it really is significant that you did not have any sense of your your human, earthly personality at that time. I think right. that's what, one of the things that makes it so different, um, your, your experience over other near-death experiences. I think most people do remember who they are. They even see their bodies, that sort of thing. You didn't. Right. Why do you think... Um, you say you think it really almost brought your near-death experience to a new level because of that, because you weren't really aware of your earthly existence. Uh, why is that? Why would that make it better?
1: Well, I think in a sense, it. Um, what what ended up happening is because of the severe uh, meningitis, and meningitis is probably the perfect model for human death, because it very specifically attacks. The whole outer surface of the brain, the neocortex, that's the part that makes us human. Everything that we experience as a human being in terms of seeing things, hearing, language, understanding, our relationship with things around us, uh, relationships with people, all of our memories of life, all of our consciousness is put together in the cortex. And by wiping out my cortex, uh, that gave me... um, Based on my previous view of neuroscience, there should have been no way to have any kind of a rich, uh, ultra-real, interactive experience, an odyssey that seemed to last for years. I mean, that should not have been able to happen at all in a brain that was like that. And in fact, I came up with nine hypotheses in the months after my coma when I was writing this up and trying to understand it, nine hypotheses that would might have explained that ultra-reality in the intense, uh, interactive, uh, and very rich uh, fabric of this, uh, this prolonged journey. Um, and none of those hypotheses worked to explain that, that this could have happened in my brain. The conclusion is that it was a very real experience because it really happened. did not happen in my brain. and it did not happen in the physical universe, and that's a very important thing to take away from my lesson, and even though the meningitis had provided a setting where I did not remember uh, personal details of my existence on Earth, there were tremendous lessons that I was taught deep in coma, all about the reasons for our existence on Earth, and, and really the reasons for existence of the whole universe, and In a sense, I would say that my experience is the exception that proves the rule, because it was not your, quote, typical, unquote, near-death experience. And yet, by showing that a very rich consciousness exists independent of the brain, when the brain is dead, Hmm. that is the biggest part of the lesson from my journey, which supports the eternity of our consciousness and of our spirit and soul.
0: Yeah, it's certainly... uh Probably the most compelling evidence, you know, that, that this was not a hallucination, that, that this was a real experience that you had. Uh, but when you say that, it's interesting because you also, you know, I know that uh, the, the bacterial meningitis that you had, you don't even know how you got it, right? They have no idea how you got it. Right. It, it
1: was very rare. I mean, spontaneous E. coli meningitis in adults, uh, is less than 1 in 10 million uh, annual incidents. Um, We never found a reason. I mean, in those rare, you know, the one in 10 million cases, you can find that there's some problem with the immune system, uh, possibly involving HIV, uh, possibly involving uh, uh, diabetes, or some other uh, medical condition. And I didn't have any of those things at all. And so my physicians never found a cause. And that, I think, has helped to keep me focused, that it was a a very rare disease, exceedingly rare, And then, of course, to be driven into coma so rapidly, uh, I went into coma in a few hours. And if you look at the literature for just kind of uh, bacterial meningitis in general, if the patient goes into coma in the first few hours, and that's the history you have when they get to the emergency room, already they're down to less than 10% chance of survival of that illness then and there. And by not responding to antibiotics uh, for the better part of that first week, and by having a declining neurologic status that then was not showing any signs of recovering towards the end, uh, I was down to about a 2% chance of survival and no chance of a neurologic recovery.
0: Right. So they would have expected you'd be in a vegetative state uh, if, if you were. All right. So with that, let's take So let me think about this. Put this in order. So you, you, come, out, you come down with this rare uh, this rare disorder. That um, they have no idea what caused it, it also happens to be the perfect uh disorder to have to really prove that this is an proof of e- of heaven you know or at least give us compelling evidence that this you what you had was a real experience because there was mm-hmm. no activity going on in the brain mm-hmm. um, and you're supposed to really probability wise, you're supposed to die or be uh, in a vegetative state and you live and look at you now. Um, you take all those things into account, account, and I have to ask you, do you think that this was all meant to be? Do you think this was all this had some purpose behind it, meaning that somebody knew that you were going to spread this message after it all.
1: Well, I, I will tell you that initially I was completely blown away by the experience, just as are millions who have had near-death experiences and come back, because that ultra-reality is so kind of shocking and astonishing. And, uh, and of course, as I would mention it to people around me, I didn't even realize then how sick I'd been and how close to death I had come. Yeah. And they would say, oh, yes, you were very, very sick. We can't even believe you're you're coming back at all. And... Uh, The message to me was, you know, don't talk too much about that incredible experience deep inside because, you know, everybody's just assuming you were so sick that anything could happen. So my original intent was to write it up as a neuroscientific report and to somehow explain how that sense of ultra-reality could happen when no part of my brain was still working that could have offered that up. Yeah. And so that's what I did for a long time. My older son, as you alluded a minute ago, was very wise. Two days out of the hospital, he came home and saw me and was shocked that I was back at all. And he said, well, if you want this to be of any value, uh, you know, write down everything you can remember. Do not read anything about near-death experiences or physics or cosmology. Do not talk to anyone who was there when you were waking up. It was very sage advice indeed. And I spent the next six weeks wrote about 20,000 words of everything I could remember from Deep Within Coma, and then started reading the near-death literature and was astonished at all the similarities to my experience, that in fact my experience seemed to support those others, and they supported mine very strongly, and yet mine also very strongly suggested that this is a real experience in a very real place, more real than this earthly realm, Mm. and that it really happened. And did not happen in my brain, nor in the physical universe. And that's when I started to really appreciate the power of what my story was telling me. And I resisted the thought, oh, this happened for some purpose. You know, I, w- I was a physician, scientist looking at this and trying to be objective as I could. And with that mindset, you know, to think that there was something special about me, uh, didn't cut it. And of course, now what I realize is that this is something that we are all familiar with. And that's why I look at this as a reminding of souls of something that souls know deep inside, even if they're heavily veiled with this kind of pseudo skepticism of our modern era. uh, They feel the the reality of this when they hear my story. And that's why I think the book is taking off. And it's not really a special thing about me. It's
0: 12 o'clock. But
1: it's special about the message itself and that it resonates with people and they understand of course there's so much more to our existence than this little materialistic view that it's all birth to death and nothing more and people know that
0: well right? i agree but you know and all that and also your credentials behind it you know people love uh, they, they appreciate and um, give more credibility to someone with your background than someone like maybe from my background who, you know, doesn't come from a scientific background, can't evaluate everything as a scientist would. Uh, people do appreciate that. They, they are always trying to find reasons to believe in these sorts of things, the afterlife and evidence of the afterlife, and you give them... Uh, you give a lot more people who maybe never would even think about it um, a reason to pay attention to your story. You know, I that makes well, you special. <laughs> well,
1: well, I I will tell you that I've I've uh, read a lot of NDE reports and I have learned a tremendous amount from some absolutely uh, beautiful, rich descriptions. Uh, and they, they, many of them were not from M.D.s or Ph.D.s or any of that. Right. Uh, and and so that the real wealth of this literature is just in the the heartfelt love that people uh, give in returning from that realm. So uh, sad that you know an M.D. degree kind of helps to get it out there, but the reality is I had to go through this journey as someone who had a deep understanding of the brain, even though when I came back, when I was starting to wake up, I didn't remember any of that. You know, I didn't even remember my family members, much less my neurosurgical knowledge. But I did remember that amazing and beautiful odyssey, uh, Deep Inside Coma. And it helped me a lot after I'd written all that down to then start going into the near-death experience literature and read some Beautiful, incredible stories from many, many people uh, that helped me to confirm my own experience. Uh, and like I said, they were not M.D.s or Ph.D.s, but they had been there. And,
0: yeah. yeah, well, and I agree. I think maybe you know the your audience. What's important about your message and and coming from you is just that it'll reach an audience that might not necessarily be open to it before, and now they will be. You know, I think that's... Right. And there's a lot of people, obviously, everybody who's been watching Afterlife TV here, um, uh, you know, a good portion of them are just happy to listen to the near-death experiences of, you know, uh, people who are not scientists. So it's true, but but you reach a whole new segment of society. The other thing i got to say is I watched you on TV a couple of times, and you also have a great way of not allowing the skeptics to get under your skin. Uh, you, first of all, you speak very articulately, but you also, when they come at you with the skepticism, it's, I, I couldn't tell the difference when they were coming at you w- with remarks about believing your experience. So <laughs> you're very right. even keel in that way. That's helpful, you know? Well, well, it is helpful. And I mean, I think we're
1: all here trying to get closer to truth. You know, we're all in this together. It's not a battle. Uh, And I embrace uh, those that come with an open mind, very questioning, with a healthy skepticism. That's a good thing, because that's the only way that we're all going to get closer to knowing the truth of our existence. Um, Occasionally, uh, you know, I get the kind of closed-minded, pseudo-skeptical type that... Uh maybe kind of going after, you know, my credentials or whatever, Uh, I will tell you, I had to learn a tremendous amount about consciousness, far beyond what I ever needed to know as a neurosurgeon. Uh, As neurosurgeons, uh, we need to know a little bit about consciousness, but, you know, given the fact that we don't even understand how general anesthesia works, and we use that every day, we've done it for 150 years, we don't have a clue how it takes away consciousness, that should give you an idea of how little... We really know about consciousness in our conventional neuroscientific world. Uh, I had to learn a whole lot more, and it involved something called the hard problem of consciousness, which is probably the deepest uh, kind of scientific philosophical question known to all of mankind, and probably the one that is the furthest from ever being solved. Uh, and also I had to learn a tremendous amount about the enigma of the interpretation of quantum mechanics and what that told me, and tells all of us about the true nature of consciousness and what a profound mystery it is.
0: It's amazing, and so you, you sort of became a student again in order to be able to spread this message.
1: Well, I, I, did, I had to study hard for three and a half years, probably mm. read more than 300 books to try and get to an answer, and when I wrote my manuscript, it's actually about four times as long as the current book, because it had to explain to me how all this made sense. And a lot of that has to do with the nature of, uh, of free will, predetermination, space-time, mass energy. I mean, I had to go very, very deep into uh, so much of what is known about reality to come up with a consistent message. But the book was being written for the general public. And so yeah. a tremendous amount of what I had to explain to myself was just too much uh, to to burden the general reader with, although yeah. working on this yeah that will consolidate a lot of those uh, kind of higher points but uh, that's not going to be for the faint of heart because it's all about the real fundamentals of existence
0: yeah that's right I will also say it's, kind of, it's, it's a page-turner. It's one of those books, you know, I, I kept saying to myself, I'll read one more chapter, and then I'd be like, oh, no, 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 one more chapter. Oh, no, you know, it really is. It's actually, it's, there, there's no yawn moments at all. It's like, oh, no. Yeah, it, it does kind of
1: grab you and take off. And, you know, that was another part of it was I wanted something that would be kind of lean and mean and get the core message across to the general reader without being some painful yeah, lap across uh, you know the wilderness, but, but really kind of take them to the next level very uh, efficiently.
0: Yeah, you did, you did, it. you did a great job because it tells a story really, and and people love stories, and it's the stories that keep us interested. Um, yeah. All right, let's talk a little bit about it. Let's let's let's. I know uh, as our audience knows from watching other of these interviews, you can't put things in chronological order um, uh, with any degree of accuracy, but. Because we're human, you have to, right? So right. I'm going to ask you put to put some chronological order in, as you, ha- as you did in the book, because you knew that. Um, right. And let's just start sort of where did, if you could pick a starting point, where did it start? You talked okay. about the realm of the earthworm's eye view in the right. book.
1: Okay, well, uh, again, important thing to note is that my first awareness deep in coma, I had no memory of my personal life of, you know, humans and, and the earth, uh, this universe, that stuff was all deleted at the beginning. And then I was in a very monotonous, kind of foamy, completely unresponsive uh, realm that I call the earthworms I view and uh, was there for a very long time. And I might have a question in my mind about what, who, where, uh, and never anything of an answer at all. Just this boiling mud, occasional faces of animals, kind of grotesque, bubbling out of the mud and then going back in, some chant or roar, pounding mechanical sound deep below. And after what seemed like an eternity in that monotonous realm, there was a spinning filamentous white light that was coming towards me. And it was beautiful with this melody this lovely perfect melody uh totally different from that monotonous pounding mechanical sound i've been hearing for eons and as this light spun slowly towards me and emphasizing here i had no body awareness at all i was just a piece of awareness and as this light came towards me it opened up and it was a rip in that ugly fabric around me And it was a portal into this lovely uh, valley, very verdant, bright, ascending up in the valley uh, and moving because I was a speck on a butterfly wing. And this lovely butterfly with colors beyond description that was doing a lazy uh, fly through down into the greenery, millions of other butterflies in this uh, colorful river of life. And we would swoop by and, and flowers blossoming, Uh, you know, tree buds that would open up as we flew by, and a sense that below us on the ground were these, uh, what I called in my early writings, peasants, but I think they were souls, uh, dancing, lots of joy and merriment, uh, children playing, dogs jumping, and these beautiful waterfalls and pools up above, these arcs of luminescent beings swooping uh, with lovely anthems, chants, hymns coming down, crescendo after crescendo. And I ended up calling them angels in my my writing. And just a beautiful world, although it had earthly trappings. It had these plants and flowers and butterflies and the peasants dancing in their vividly colored outfits, but earthly trappings. So uh, clearly, I, ca- I call that the gateway, uh, not to be confused with the true heaven, which was in the core, because on this butterfly wing beside me was a was a lovely, lovely girl dressed in the same kind of, kind of peasant clothing as the people below us. And she had the most beautiful smile as she looked at me with her sparkling blue eyes. And I didn't have any language or words at the time, but her thoughts went straight into my mind. You are loved, you are cherished deeply forever. There's nothing you can do wrong in that realm, not in the earthly realm. Nothing you can do wrong, and that you have nothing to fear. And it was the most comforting thing I can, I can, I mean, the words do not do justice to feeling that unconditional power, powerful, eternal uh, love that she was projecting. And then there was this warm breeze, like a perfect summer breeze that blew through. And that was my first awareness of the divine, of the all-powerful, all-knowing, and infinitely loving, in an unconditional fashion, creator that was behind every bit of it, Mm -hmm. and from that awareness, all of that collapsed, everything collapsed, the universe collapsed, higher dimensional space and time, everything collapsed down, and I entered uh, that third realm, which I call the core. And that was infinite in size, infinite blackness, no boundaries. I mean, imagine the, the all of higher dimensional space-time, all of eternity there before me. And yet, sensing the boundaries of infinity, there were no boundaries. And this the sound of the Alm, which is what I call that defined being, that all-powerful creator, when I was writing this up, because any of our words at all, earthly words like God, things like that, were so limiting and, and kind of diminished the power and awe of that presence. And so my reference to that deity, uh, which I think most people would say, yes, that sounds like God, um, my reference to that uh, in those uh, first writings for the first few months, uh, I I use the, the word om, because om was actually the sound I heard that was Uh, In essence, it was the resonance of that divine, all-loving being throughout higher dimensional space and all of eternity. Uh, And, of course, when I say resonance, people with any kind of physics background are thinking, well, this implies that there's some boundaries and there's a kind of a bouncing of waves and energy. But in all of eternity, that was exactly what that sounded like when it was kind of the integration of all of everything over all of time, that was that being, was that om. No gender to that om at all. And like I said, any descriptive words uh, in our earthly realm fall woefully short of describing the power and awe of that being. And of course, that realization also showed me why our science, our, uh, our current level of science, and even the potential for any of our scientific understanding in the material physicalist world, uh, will never, ever be able to weigh in pro or con to the existence of that deity because that deity is so far beyond our wildest imagination and dreams as human beings stuck in human brain and body. And what I found was that I would I would then i when I entered that core, I was with this brilliant orb of light brighter than a million suns, and that infinite darkness, but the infinite blackness uh contained every bit of that uh overpowering love, unconditional love, and it was uh totally outside of this universe, uh, and when I say me, believe me, this was consciousness of all eternity and of all. Consciousness throughout the multiverse, this is not Eben Alexander's uh, little conscious mind wandering on this journey, but it was all of us. And this is something that I think resonates with people, with souls, because our souls do remember this. They know this deeply, and I'm just reminding souls of something they already know, trying to uncover uh, that, that knowing that's within each and every one of us by being conscious. And that's another uh, blessing from my journey is you don't have to almost die to get this. In fact, just by being conscious, of uh, using centering prayer, deep meditation, uh, these are ways that each and every one of us can get in touch with that absolute connection of that divine within each one of us uh, that is there to give us that that knowing of love and of our connectedness to each other and to all that exists, by quieting that you know little voice of kind of fear and anxiety in our head, and, uh, and going deep into our own consciousness, and we can all get in touch with exactly what I encountered in the core.
0: <clears throat> wow, that's amazing! All right, um, so many things that you talked about there. I'll back up a little bit. Um, all right, let's just go to the butterfly because you know I saw you on TV a couple times. You talked about floating on the butterfly wing, and, and I thought, oh, the skeptics are going to love that, um, because it sounds very woo-woo, and what I'm wondering, though, is because I've recognized that, you know, when people have near-death experiences, you know, or my understanding is when we go to the spirit world, um, we're able to have whatever experience we want. Up there okay we can whatever we can imagine we can have I'm wondering was you know this idea of floating on the butterfly wing something that maybe again I know there was no sense of you as you know as Eben Alexander but um, do you think it was more related like it's just your experience or is are people to take it very literally that there are butterflies floating around there and the way we travel around is on the wing of them uh,
1: uh, that's an excellent question. I mean, I, I would point out here that the, I see, uh, you know, I, I now see near-death experiences and afterlife reports going back 2,500 years, you know, to the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Plato. Uh, I see the similarities uh, far more than I focus on the differences, because I see an underlying reality. Of an afterlife realm that's very real it's more real and more fundamental than this earth-like reality that we live in and i think that's very very important uh, it's also important to realize i now see consciousness I, I know from my experience it proved to me that our spirit our soul is eternal that consciousness uh, we are conscious in spite of our brain and that's a very important concept the brain is more of a reducing valve uh, a filter or a veil, uh, and it's there for a purpose, um, that we are not always privy to that uh, spiritual realm. Uh, part of the problem, of course, is we would be inundated because our higher soul, uh, not limited down here in, on this side of the veil, in the brain and body and in our, in our little kind of earth-like existence, uh, that higher soul is not stuck in space and time at all and is actually aware of a much richer reality that extends through all eternity. And we really need to dumb that down to a trickle to have the stuff that's necessary for surviving in the here and now as a mammal, you know, kind of going along with Darwinian selection on, on this earth. I mean, it we can't know all of that when we're down here in the down and dirty physical realm. But there are ways that we can get back to it, get in touch with it, to peer behind that veil. And again, that has to do with deep meditation uh, and with centering prayer. Uh, I would say also what I call the gift of desperation, which is often the way I saw this uh, happen in my patients uh, with terminal illnesses or family members. Uh, It's at that moment when your sense of loss is so great that you don't feel you could possibly handle any more. That often people would describe uh, feeling that infinite love of of God for them and and to know that they were loved and cherished and and would be uh, protected and that it was all okay after all and it's getting in touch with that and again, through deep meditation, uh, I have to do that uh, first and foremost by getting rid of that little voice in my head, uh, you know that little voice of self ego. That is um that's not the decision maker
0: mm-hmm. and that's
1: I am uh you know I actually witness that's how I know that the real I, which is the real us, which is all connected to the one at the core, needs to let that put that little voice in time out because that voice of fear and anxiety, the self ego um you know that is not the real me at all. And it needs to be turned off for me to get in touch with the much deeper aspects of our connectedness and oneness and that divine link to God.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'll just back up a little bit on that. So would you say, are we talking more, it's more of a metaphor, the butterfly experience or or literal?
1: As I said, just the facts, ma'am. I mean, this, yeah. <laughs> I just wrote the story as I remembered it. I wasn't editing it. I wasn't trying to write it for Anybody to please anybody. I wasn't thinking about, you know, literary metaphors. This is what I remembered, and of course, you're right. There, there are the skeptics out there. Oh, this is ridiculous. Butterfly wing, beautiful girl. Yeah. Um, well, guess what? It's what I remember. I didn't add things. Um, it was actually a richer story uh, than our than I portray in the book because we 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 did edit some of that original core story out. Uh, parts of it that are very uh, illuminating about uh, overall journey, Uh, those are pieces that I often discuss in my presentations. So you can often hear that in presentations, and, of course, a lot of that will also be featured uh, in my second book, kind of a real fleshing out of the lessons that I learned in the core um, and what it all means. I mean, I go into, in the book, the, the whole notion of love, of that unconditional and infinite love of the Creator, uh, for each and every one of us, how that is the, the actual fabric of makeup of the higher dimensional aspects of this realm, and that evil is here as, as a trace in purity. It's all about our manifesting the love of that creator, showing compassion and love for our fellow souls, even when we're down here in this uh, kind of dumbed down uh, earth um, uh, earthly realm. Uh, you know that that is the the reason for the, for our existence is to manifest that love, even in this imperfect world, and uh, you know so none of this is metaphorical. I will say, yeah. uh, I was reassured when uh, I started reading some of uh, Elizabeth Kubler Ross's works and found that when she had toured some of the uh, concentration camps and right after the end of World War II, she was absolutely Stricken with the fact that often uh, uh, children who were being led into uh, uh, into gas chambers were <laughs> carving butterflies in the wood, and she puzzled over this for decades, uh, and then finally came to see how butterflies were very often uh, seen in that afterlife realm, and hmm. also stories of the giant tornado and and how the children. Reported butterfly angels that that saved them, and some amazing stories. Um, but it's it's not a metaphor. This is what I remembered, and I'm just reporting it.
0: Yeah, and I love that because you could have, you could have. I'm sure you foresaw, you know, what some people would think of that, and you could have you could have opted to not tell that part of the story. But you, we can see how important it was that you did.
1: To me, it was it was not my place to be editing. Yeah. Strongly because I thought something would be unpopular, uh, and likewise, I wasn't going to add things in that weren't there. Yeah, I think a lot of uh, people uh, say in in the fundamentalist Christian realm would prefer that I had seen Jesus. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't see Jesus, so I didn't put him in there. But I, I did see a loving God that uh, was every bit the one that uh, that that. That Jesus knew and and talked about, and that infinitely loving God uh, is exactly who we saw and came to know very deeply, Hmm. and also came to realize that we all know that God very deeply, and we can get in touch with that deep in our own consciousness.
0: can... You know, you talked a little bit about the evil. One of the things I thought was important that you, you mentioned in the book was that evil made free will possible. I mean you touched upon that just a moment ago, but I loved the idea that 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 the evil in our on our planet, for instance, in our physical existence, is what makes our human free will possible. Anything to expand on that? Really just that um I
1: must say when you know when I came back from this and realized and had felt the power of that uh, omnipotent and all-loving God it was hard to reconcile that with some of the evil and injustice that is allowed in our world hmm. especially I wrestled with uh, the suffering of innocent in our world of children, right. animals and it was, I really had to struggle um, and and learn a lot, you know, knowing what I knew from my near-death experience and going into meditation a lot to keep uncovering uh, some of the beautiful lessons there, uh, to come to some kind of reconciliation about that. But it, it had to do very much with knowing that the love, that unconditional love, uh, is so far beyond our imagination. I mean, that God loves each and every one of us far more than we love ourselves. And it explains so much about why belief was so encouraged by Jesus and by other teachers, because belief is what sets us free. To open ourselves to believe the possibility of it, then we can just go into our own consciousness and start to feel the power of that belief and to know that it actually manifests as reality in our lives and that that is because it's very real it's it's fundamentally real but we're supposed to live in a realm on this side of the veil where we don't know it's not as clear as say the moon rising in the sky every night if if the spiritual realm and the reality of god in heaven were as real as the moon rising every night um, we would not be able to treat this existence uh, appropriately for our progress in in the higher realm. We would not have the proper respect for this. And so there has to be that element of faith and belief. And that's why science will never prove pro or con the existence of that realm. Uh, also, that God is so far beyond our wildest dreams, imaginations as human beings, uh, that to even think that we could come close to proving yes or no is, uh, is hubris of the highest order.
0: Well, I know a lot of our audience right now is probably wondering, um, when we're talking about these things, any, any sense that there is such a thing as hell? Um, and you might follow it up. You talked about the light and the darkness. I, I realize it's a different subject, but when you talk about the light and the darkness, what I've heard about other people say about near-death experiences is that the darkness, there was light within the darkness, um, that the darkness was a very friendly, you know, velvety, you know, multi-dimensional, um, multi-sensory experience. Uh, so, but I, I know that a lot of people are wondering, we're talking about the evil here in the physical world, any sense that there was any um, sense of hell and is that related at all to what you said about there being darkness? Well, in
1: fact, um, in terms of the evil, uh, in terms of the badness, for those who hand out mayhem and pain and agony to others, uh, they end up reaping what they sow because in the life review, when they leave this body and go through their life review, they end up living that pain and agony that they dished out uh, in every single instance as the recipient. And it's much worse in that pure spiritual realm to feel the agony of that pain that they've caused others. So in that sense, you could say there is a hell. There's not, in my view, there is not the eternal damnation uh, that is pictured in uh, kind of classic, you know, Christianity. Uh, And the reason for that is this God is so perfect and so loving and so all-powerful that there's no way that part of that creation will be an eternal damnation. This is all about our our spirits, our souls ascending in that outer realm and and getting closer and closer to that all-loving godhood. And it has to do with our learning lessons in this life. And that's why I look at hardship, difficulty, challenges. And as a healer, I look at disease and illness
0: Mm.
1: as the opportunities for growth and our souls are here to learn lessons and we learn them through the difficulties in this life by embracing those difficulties and seeing them as learning opportunities realizing that by manifesting that love and compassion in this imperfect realm that that is how we progress in that higher spiritual realm and uh, any, and given that the whole direction of that and the fabric of that higher realm is made of that love and that, that evil is but an impurity that allows us to manifest our free will, given that the ascendance in that outer realm has everything to do with moving towards that uh, unconditional love from the creator to the creation, anyone who's handing out mayhem and pain in this world is going to have to make up for that wrong word direction. Uh, either in this life or in other lives, so it's—I uh, mean, to me, it—it it, it all that all is kind of the way I, I have to put it together. It does involve reincarnation as a, a very necessary part of it?
0: Yeah, that's true. Um, uh, the way it's written up in the book, there isn't this sort of an end to this experience where you leave the core, uh, you move away from the core, and go back to that sort of muddy existence, but it's different than the first time you experienced it. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's, uh,
1: it, was, it was kind of shocking when I remembered all this and I was trying to make sense of it because I would be in the core where I was told, we will teach you many things, but you will be going back. And this was taught by this divine, dazzling darkness of love of that, of that God beyond our wildest imagination and this brilliant orb of light. Uh, And they were teaching many things, but I didn't know back, back where. And I would then end up without any kind of pathway or or foreshadowing. I just would be back in the earthworm eye view. And it was very shocking the first time. I couldn't understand any of this, and I still had no language, and I was trying to put this together. But by remembering, and the first time it took a, a very long time, but by remembering that melody, the notes of the melody, they were crucial at bringing back that spinning white light the beautiful filamentous light that came spinning up out of the muck and opened as a portal into this gorgeous gateway on the butterfly wing beautiful girl beside me every time i went back in there and several times this happened where i would fall into the earth where my view and then i had to remember the notes of the melody spin that up and i'd be back on the butterfly wing in the gateway with the beautiful girl always that same lovely face, comforting thoughts of pure, unconditional love that I would be taken care of and cherished, and then outside of this universe, outside of all of eternity, to be taught more lessons by the orb of light and by that beautiful, loving presence. And it did happen several times. We're always saying, you will be going back. You're not here to stay. And one day that was true, where that spinning trying to remember the notes didn't bring that spinning melody, and in fact I was headed back down to the earthly realm. I didn't know or remember it at the time, and it was then that I became aware of the, of the power of prayer, because I sensed these arcs of beings, everyone kneeling, many cloaked, holding candles, and there was this murmuring coming up from them, and there were thousands of them going off into the darkness, uh, some with candles, and that murmuring and that energy was billowing these uh, beautiful, brilliant clouds that were kind of bubbling me up and bringing me back up to this realm. And when I was writing it all up a few weeks later, uh, the word I used was that they were praying for me because that's exactly what they were doing. Uh, that word was not in my mind at the time. Yeah. In a sense, it was very comforting because when I had found that the the – melody no longer worked to take me into that beautiful realm, uh, I was very sad. I mean, sad beyond description that the gates of heaven were closed. And that is when I had this this beautiful vision of those praying for me and how they were on earth. This was not from any earthly scene, but, you know, that was the origin of that scene of thousands of people kneeling and, and murmuring and the energy coming from it. And that's what I often tell um, health care workers and families of, of very sick patients um, in talking about this is never, ever think that the, the soul of that loved one is not present and, and that the prayers get in. And and I don't try and tell people that I came back because of prayer. I mean, there was a lot of prayer in my case, but I've known many similar cases as a neurosurgeon where wonderful families, uh, patients with terminal diseases, lots of prayer, uh, and yet that patient did not come back to us physically. And it wasn't for any lack of prayer or belief. Uh, but the important thing is the prayers do get in. And I don't care if the patient has already been pronounced uh, you know, dead in our medical terms, know that that soul is present and aware, and how you treat that and how you think about that uh, is very important. And so, prayer does have tremendous power, and it's very comforting to that soul that is being prayed for.
0: That's really that's really important to hear. Um, a great reminder: is there is there a wrong way to pray? Is there a right way to pray? I
1: think just uh, by believing and by knowing that there's a divine plan, you know, thy will, not mine, be done.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I I mean, for those eight years before my coma, I'd given up on God, given up on prayer. Uh, I was praying for the wrong things, and I was trying to pray for things that, you know, that my uh, ego and self might want, and those prayers went unanswered. Uh, And just know there's a divine plan, and just have faith that that love will carry us through whatever we face in this realm.
0: I also like the idea. You, you know, when you were you were going back to the earthworm view um, after leaving the core. And then you thought about the the spinning melody again, and it brought you back up. I, I thought, what a what a wonderful metaphor. I understand that's a real experience, but it was what a me- wonderful metaphor for our physical life here. When we're feeling down, when things are down, when things are bad, to think of light, to think, to have faith, those types of things. Um, I wonder if it works the same way. You get the sense that it does. It, it lifts us up
1: very much, and. Uh, my my youngest sister, Phyllis often uh tells me that when I first was waking up on that seventh morning and the doctors were shocked, you know he can 't be coming back and ended up pulling the breathing tube out i'd been on a ventilator all week um and she came up within you know minutes of my coming out of all this and Uh, She said, I looked like a little Buddha sitting there on the bed, and I would look around at each one of the people, you know, doctors, nurses, family, totally shocked that I was back. And I'd look at each one of them, kind of acknowledging the divine miracle that we're here, and each breath is a miracle. And I would say, all is well.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's amazing.
1: Well. And we are loved, cherished and cared for and by believing it and then feeling it deep in our own consciousness, feeling that divine connection, quieting that voice, the voice of fear and anxiety, the little voice in our head that's just a spectator Um, and getting in touch with that divine connection that we all share and that's why it's all about loving each other but because by loving each other we're loving ourselves and acknowledging that divine link that we all share at the deepest level
0: Mm, that's beautiful, that's beautiful um let's talk a little bit. so the woman that you met, the girl that you met on the butterfly wing, more of like an angel or guide to you um the being the first being that you saw uh i I think one again very compelling evidence that your experience was real um and not imagined is her identity. Do you mind sharing with us us that? <laughs>
1: I, I want to put out a spoiler alert. Okay. okay. Because anybody, I my preference is people read my book and and feel what I felt. And that's what I try to present in the book, the way it's all laid out. Uh, so for those of you who really want to get the power of it and haven't read the book, uh, you know, spoiler alert right now. Uh, it turns out that uh, I was adopted. I was put up for adoption when I was two weeks old, adopted age four months. And for a lot of my life, I looked for my birth mother through the North Carolina Children's Home. North Carolina had pretty strict laws. Um, never found that there was any interest on her part in finding me. And I adjusted to that. That's fine. I mean, she was going on with her life, and they left me to go on with my life. And that was, I was okay with that. And then my son was doing a, a research uh, project in school in sixth grade uh, in the year 2000 when uh, he wanted to find out more about our family heritage. And he wouldn't let it go when I told him about my adoptive family heritage. He wanted to know about our biological family. So I thought I'd humor him. I wrote a letter to the North Carolina Children's Home, and I actually got a response back. Well, yes, we did find something out, and I detail all that in my, my book. It was a shocking two minutes in my life back in February 2000. Uh, finding out that, in fact, my birth parents got married, which was a big shock based on all the information I had, that they had three children, that my youngest sister had passed over in 1998, and that they were still grieving, and it was not a good time to come back in their lives. And that sent me in a tailspin. That was, in fact, why I lost all faith in a loving, personal God, lost all faith in prayer in 2000. And that was lost for eight years until my coma. And now, of course, that's all been... Uh, healed forever. I will never, ever doubt the eternity of our souls and that all-loving God. But it turns out that as I was trying to understand the depth of my experience, and it was clearly a very powerful transcendental experience, and yet as I read more and more about near-death experiences, I was mystified. Why wasn't my father there? My adoptive father had passed over four years before before my coma. And If I had scripted this, he would have been there front and center. But he was nowhere to be seen. And who was this mysterious girl? I could remember her face so perfectly. I knew I'd never met her in my whole life. So why was she there? And how come my dad wasn't there? And this was, I mean, this was a a deal breaker. I mean, I I knew I'd had a profound uh, spiritual experience when my brain should have supported no experience at all. So how come? Why? Such a deep mystery to it. And it was four months out um, from coma when I actually was w- was able to put it all together. My birth sister, Kathy, had promised to send me a picture of Betsy, the sister who had passed on in 1998. And I, she did send that picture, and that was uh, a very powerful emotional experience. She just looked so so familiar, and it was the next morning when I was reading a story in Elizabeth Kubler-Ross about a girl who had had a profound near-death experience, was in coma, and encountered her brother, and he gave her such beautiful, unconditional love of that realm, and they had the, the most adoring time together, and she was so blessed with it, but then he helped her make a decision to go back to Earth. And she did. And when she came back, she was mystified and talking with her father. I don't understand. I don't have a brother. And her father said, well, you did. He died three months before you were born. And we never told you about him. And I looked up at that picture that my birth sister had just sent me of my departed birth sister, Betsy. And I knew exactly who had been on the butterfly wing. It was the most powerful experience i 've ever had in this life, I was absolutely certain of the of the uh, identity and yet since i didn 't really know her personality so well, I was just shocked at the power of this, but I said it can 't be i mean that's that 's too too amazing and so then I started calling my my uh, birth family every you know week or so I would call and ask them questions trying to get to know Betsy better. And as they told me more and more about how uh, she had been this all-loving soul who would bring in stray cats and dogs and, 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 you know, give them a home and feed them. And she worked in a rape crisis center and just took care of people that needed caring. And uh, she was such a loving soul, often described as an angel. And it just became absolutely clear to me, of course, that's who it was and the visual memory was perfect and it's because that's who it
0: was okay there's chills right there so you know and the reason I brought it up you know I know it's a spoiler alert but I know that a lot of the news stations have asked you in their five-minute interviews <laughs> that are all edited up and I had two people come to me and say could you ask them you know cuz they hadn't read the book yet can you ask them because I'm so confused by that and you know so anyways this is nice because you had the time to be able to really explain it in depth. What a beautiful story! What a beautiful ending to the book, really beautiful ending to this, um, you know, to this interview that we have here. All I can say is, I just I hope people will go out and buy the book. I know they will. Uh, everybody else in in the country, if not the world, is doing it. Uh, even with knowing that, I mean, I kind of suspected all the way through. Uh, anyways, but even without knowing that, it's a page turner. You never know what's going to happen. It's amazing all the way through. As we end, as we close down here, and I I wish it didn't have to happen because I wish I could talk to you for another few hours. um, You you touched upon our reasons for existence here. I know that's probably a book in itself. Can we just end with maybe you just uh, giving us a little sense of what we're doing here?
1: Yeah, it's... It's such a beautiful message, and in many ways, it's so simple. And what my experience very plainly demonstrates is that our consciousness, our spirit, our soul is eternal. We are spiritual beings. It is not dependent on the brain. And we are so much more than our physical bodies. And our true reason for being here as a spirit and soul uh, extends far beyond the simple materialistic view that it just goes birth to death and that's all there is. We are so much more than that. And our relationships with our fellow souls are far richer than that, as is the meaning and the purpose for our being here at all.
0: Okay, powerful. Absorb that minute. <laughs> Let me just show the title while everybody's absorbing that. Show the cover of the book again. You'll know it. He's on the back there. Proof of Heaven, uh, Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife. There'll be a link below this video where people can, uh, can get it on Amazon, can order it on Amazon. You've been a delight. You're a delight in so many ways. What a great guest, and you can feel your warmth and, and the love that you have in telling this story. And I'm really grateful for you uh, joining us today, uh, Evan. I, I thank you. Thank you, and
1: I also wanted to ask people to visit Eternia, E-T-E-R-N-E-A dot org, uh, which is a site that we've started to educate people about all manner of spiritually transformative experiences, just near-death experiences. But and people can report their own experiences there, plus educational. Uh, to help people understand consciousness, physics of consciousness, and how our spiritual existence is primary, and science and spirituality can come together—that's a huge part of my message and my mission.
0: What is that website again?
1: Eternia.org. E-T-E-R-N-E-A dot org. Okay. And your personal website is what? It is death dot net.
0: Okay. All right. Uh, those links will be below the video as well. And, uh, and I'm sure everybody's going to want to visit those and and learn more. So anyways, maybe we'll get to talk to you again in the future. I know you're going to have another book coming out. Um, or maybe you just want to tell us more of the story, but either way, thanks. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you, Bob. I appreciate it.
0: All right. Bye now.